0: Will you guys flip to the book of Colossians with me? Chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 15, and we're going to go to verse 20. Again, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I'm reading out of the CSB version. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood, through his blood, shed on the cross.
1: Thanks, Christian. Sorry, Trevor, you may have to adjust this headset. I've never used it before. might be too loud. I don't know. You guys know. Well, if you don't know me, uh, my name is BJ. I'm one of the staff pastors here. I'm not normally up here on a Sunday. Uh, I just do this when Mike is out or when he wants uh, me to learn. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, usually once a month. So this is not my favorite thing to do. And I, I have a confession. I have a confession. I, I need to um, come clean about something. And that is uh, I tell people that I hate doing this. I hate getting up here on Sunday, uh, and it's true, but it's a bit of a misrepresentation. It's a bit, bit of a misrepresentation. I don't like getting up here because I'm deadly stage fright, uh, and I actually mean that. Like people so like, ah, oh, you're just saying no. I'm actually like, I freak out every time I get up here. It freaks me out. Um, has since I was a kid. Never want to be on stage. Uh, freaks me out all the time. So that 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 portion of me hitting to get up here and do this is true, uh, but the the reality is actually that um, some of the most incredibly precious times that I've ever spent with the Lord were found because of I was teaching on a Sunday morning. And we sang about the secret place, going to the secret place this morning. Um, and I, I felt very convic- convicted that I was not expounding on that portion of what God does through me getting up here. And um, they're some of the sweetest times, diving deeper into His Word. Um, and recognizing that his word has a purpose for us here today and through all time um, And so if you ever hear me say and boy, I hate getting up on Sunday mornings we, like just rebuke me in the moment to so be like ah, stop that like you know Like yeah, maybe you got stage fright, but that's that's not the whole picture. So Anyways, um, we're gonna be in mark chapter 8 mark chapter 8. You can open to mark chapter 8 um, Again, thanks to Christian for covering all that stuff for me when when Mike is gone Ellie, Christian, Mike Parent, Todd Steele. These are the people who become, like, the pillars that keep me rolling through the week. So I appreciate those guys so much. Uh, I would never want to do this alone while Mike's out in another country, as it were, <laughs> across the ocean. So Mark chapter 8. And it occurred to me as I was studying through this that, um, that we call ourselves Christians, yeah? Like most of us. Uh... Not everybody who calls themselves a Christian actually means it, uh, but we call ourselves Christians. And the word Christian uh, means to follow Christ's example. We know this, we've heard this. This isn't new information, but sometimes something brings new meaning as you're studying through. To follow Christ's example. And if that is our goal, if that's actually genuinely our goal, if we mean it, then we must actually understand how Jesus lived. And then we must choose to change our own behaviors and beliefs to match his. Now, I've always stopped at the sin part. I need to not sin. Jesus was sinless. I need to not sin. And I think quite often I forget about the fact that I'm supposed to be following in Jesus' footsteps, which means I need to actually live like him, not just sinless, but also my conduct towards other people needs to be like his my uh, humility needs to be like his now of course there's areas I can't follow Jesus he's uh, he's he is God I am NOT and so I'm not supposed to be God Jesus was able to die for our sins I can't do that Uh, so there's of course there's areas we're not meant to be exactly like Jesus and yet sometimes I read how Jesus does things and it goes in one ear and out the other And then I do ministry totally different than how Jesus does ministry. That's silly. That's crazy. That's nonsense. And yet I do it all the time. See, we need to emulate Jesus in a practical sense, and we need to seek the same end goal that he pushed for, the same purpose. Same purpose. Practically speaking, if we want to um, think like someone, you must study them a lot. Like a lot. you got to study a lot. I didn't understand how my wife thinks right after getting married. Some of you are chuckling because, you know, the cliché joke to throw in here would be like, and I still don't because she's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> that's <a, laughs> the cliché joke, Right? <laughs> But that's not actually true. It's not actually true. That can be true. You can choose to live your life that way and go through marriage that way. Um, But it's not true for me. I do know how my wife thinks. And I discovered that that cliche joke is actually a really bad excuse to not know what your spouse thinks. No, I don't always know what she's thinking. That would be impossible. That's something only God can do. And I definitely had no clue when we were first married. And for some years after getting married as well. You see, it wasn't until I desired, until I desired to know what Kami was thinking, that I finally started to understand her better. And that took some years. And that desire led me to something. It led me to study her response to things. It led to questions about how she feels and thinks about things. Apparently, I breathe a lot. Mike doesn't sound like this. The, 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 but it causes me to question to, everything that she does to understand why she does and thinks these things. It causes me to go down that road. And the most important thing that my desire to know my wife better led me to was experiencing things together. Up until that point, it was all about me doing my thing over here while she does her thing over here. That's how it started. My things were things that I knew she wouldn't be into. I knew that. I knew she wouldn't enjoy them. I knew that experiencing her things would reduce how much I get to do my things. You're like, wow, what are you doing? I know, that's my question. Like, terrible husband, right? Like, why am I up here? What's going on? God has a sense of humor. It's a funny thing. No, that is despicable say, what? Whoa, despicable. Yeah, it's been years focusing on me instead of getting to know my wife through experiencing things with her. And that's despicable. And It required change and repentance in my life. And I praise God that now I'm in a position where I actually know my wife. I know how she thinks. I know how she does things because I took that step and she was very available to me for that step. This is a very simple fact about relationships. If we want to truly know someone, we can't just merely study them. We really have to experience them. Do life with them. Try things their way. And that illustrates the desire side of relationship. But it falls short when talking about Jesus. I'm not expected to follow in my wife's footsteps
0: for a lot of reasons.
1: But I'm not. I'm not expected to follow in my wife's footsteps. We are expected to follow in Jesus' footsteps as a couple. We represent Jesus better as a whole, complete, together. And now with our son, that, that continues. Family structure continues that way. We are supposed to follow in Jesus' footsteps That means that we must first find in ourselves a strong desire, strong enough to give up the way the things that we do when we find Jesus doing things different from us. We need that desire. It has to be real. You can't manufacture desire. It doesn't work. This morning's text shows something special about the way that Jesus does things, a way that is different from the way that I do things, and it reminds us of why Jesus is worthy to be followed. So, where are we at? Uh, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. You can find verse 22 on your page. We're going to read through a a small chunk here. We're going to go through 30, but we're going to read a small chunk to start. And today we find Jesus and his apostles are on their way to Caesarea Philippi. Which we'll read more about in the coming weeks about Caesarea Philippi. This week, we read about a little pit stop on the way to Caesarea where Jesus is going to heal another blind man once again. So, first off, did you catch that? Jesus' pit stops were crazy, y'all. That's wild. When I make a pit stop, it's usually for gas. The highlight for me is usually a big uh, bag of spicy peanuts and a stick of jerky. Like, that's kind of, that's the highlight of my pit stops. That's what a a, a B.J. Varney pit stop looks like. (laughs) Jesus' pit stops were on a totally another level. Like, a totally another level. He's like, we're going to Caesarea. We're going to make a pit stop here in Bethsaida. And it's going to be crazy. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, they brought a blind man to him, and begged him to touch him. First off, grammatically, that's a hard thing to decipher. They, they, him, him, him. They, somebody else, brought this man to Jesus after they, Jesus and the apostles, came to Bethsaida, and they begged him, Jesus, to heal him, the blind man. English is funny. And he took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Interesting. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So they come to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. What's the touch for? It's healing, right? The touch is for healing. This is how Jesus healed many people. People, the word got out, just a touch could work. That's why you see the woman who just touched the hem of his, like, it's knowledge. Touch Jesus, boom, power, healing. Saved. There's faith there. There's belief there. We just touch him. So, first we find the location of this pit stop, Beseda. Now, Beseda was part of the region of Galilee. Um, so, if you're familiar with the region at all, that means it is a very lush, green region. Okay, region of Galilee is very lush, very green in the Middle East. It stands out in that, that it's very, very lively. And so the setting, this beautiful lush area, this little village. Now, if you'll know the Gospels well, you might remember Bethsaida as one of the places where most of Jesus's miracles were performed, which is not a good thing. Say, what? It's not a good thing. We find some details about Bethsaida, which is recorded in Matthew 11, 20 through 24. It'll be on the screen for you. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades for the miracles that were done in you. If the miracles were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained, and remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Yikes! Big yikes. So why on earth go back there? Why go back to Bethsaida? Simple. It's just a pit stop on the way to Caesarea. That's really it. More than that, though, Bethsaida was also the hometown of three of Jesus' apostles that I was able to dig up. John 1, 4-4 tells us, Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. So you have people walking with Jesus who come from this town. So a stop here makes sense, and some very practical sense at that. There would be a place to rest on their way through. There wasn't always a Motel 6 in the Middle East. A lot of times you needed to stop off at some family or friend's home. Makes good practical sense. I think this helps us understand why Jesus takes the blind man outside of the village. Why he doesn't perform the miracle in the village. I found that detail very odd at first until you start looking at Bethsaida. It's like, oh, (laughs) he performed all miracles. And he says they're going to be condemned severely for their lack of faith. And so he takes the man outside the village. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes, laying hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Without this information, it wouldn't make much practical sense to take a blind man out of the village. This is why I love the secret place, the secret time, digging these details apart, just me and the Lord. I love it. It would be a lot easier to simply heal him on the spot. Then he could easily walk anywhere he liked. This highlights another great image. How did the blind men get out of the city, according to the scriptures? How did the blind man get out of the city? Yeah, I heard somebody say it. Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the city. This man was in darkness in two ways, a very practical sense. He couldn't see. There was no physical light. But he was also surrounded by spiritual darkness. Intense unbelief. Intense unbelief. Don't miss the imagery here that the scriptures are giving us Jesus brought this man out of the darkness into the light and he did it by holding his hand and guiding him every step of the way this is how Jesus does ministry and it takes so much work to do it this way it takes so much person To person knowledge this way. It takes so much care this way. This is our example. This is our Christ. He does something else strange as well. Instead of commanding the blind man to see, as you would typically see Jesus do, he asks him, Do you see anything? And the man answers in verse 24. He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. For some reason, this man's sight wasn't yet fully restored. He sees people, but they're like trees, walking trees. Which, like, hold up a minute. How you know what a tree looks like, Mr. Blind Dude? Like, come on now. <laughs> Most likely, it's actually believed that this man was probably not born blind, but rather lost his sight due to injury or illness. Which may, and that's just may, we don't know this for sure, Scripture doesn't say so. Um, we don't know for sure, but it may indicate why Jesus spat in his eyes. Now, if Jesus spits in someone's eyes and they get healed, who cares why he did it? He has a good reason. Like, it's a good reason. But this may actually point to something. If the blindness was due to injury or illness, there's a good chance that there would be crusty eye goop holding the lids closed. Adam Clark suggests that healing the vision would take a miracle. Opening the eyelids might just take some very practical spittle. So he performs the miracle, the guy can see, but eyelids still goop together. That's a possibility, we don't know. But it was a fun detail. I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe maybe that's true. I don't know. Still cool either way. Miracle performed. That's all besides the main point, though. This healing is very unique in that it's a, notice, gradual healing. It didn't just happen. This is the first time we see a gradual healing instead of instantaneous. Normally you see Jesus commanding people, rise and walk. It's like words of power. He speaks it and it just happens. Rise and walk, power. And then they do. Or he says, be opened. Like we actually read last time I was up here. Be opened and the vision was restored to the blind man. But this time he asks, seemingly knowing that this healing was going to be gradual. Or did he intend this healing to be gradual? This is a question we have to wrestle with a little bit this morning. Did Jesus know that his healing would be gradual, just simply knew it? Or did he intend it to be gradual? Those are two different things, and they matter. Now, I've read arguments for both sides, dug through a whole bunch of commentaries, mostly from Morgan, Wearsby, Guzik. Um, No, I didn't do Spurgeon on this one. But I read through a bunch of commentaries, and the most compelling argument that Jesus didn't intend the healing, or that Jesus did intend the, actually let's see what the first one, the bit, most compelling argument that uh, that Jesus knew it would be gradual, but didn't necessarily intend it to be gradual, was based off of Mark six five. Uh, which says, uh, 5 and 6, he was not able to do a miracle there, this is speaking of a different time, Um, except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. This was in his hometown, home region, very close. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Okay, so this argument suggests that the gradual healing was due to a lack of faith. Lack of faith. Either in the man or in the region itself which is very plausible you can totally believe that and it's not heretical um, to my knowledge as far as I can see in Scripture It would still be okay for the lack of faith because we see it in other portions of Scripture the lack of faith to prevent healing now the most compelling argument that Jesus intended to he- the healing to be gradual is based on where they're going next where the Apostles are traveling to Jesus' ability to heal, uh, and Jesus' ability to heal in similar situations in the past. In the past, Jesus was able to heal uh, many individuals based purely on their friends or family's faith. Think of the Syrophoenician woman, the Centurion man, etc. There's a whole bunch. Doesn't always have to be the individual. Doesn't have to have faith necessarily. Sometimes he healed somebody based off somebody other, some someone else's faith. Just somebody had to have faith. so what does verse 22 say they came to Bethsaida they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him faith there's faith there whoever brought this man to Jesus truly seemed to believe that all Jesus had to do was touch him which indicates the faith so I find that while both options are plausible I think the idea that Jesus intended the healing to be gradual to be more probable both plausible I think it's more likely he wanted it to be gradual further evidence by where they're going and why Jesus is going to Caesarea Philippi to have a very serious conversation with his Apostles he's going to tell them as plain as day what's going that he's going to suffer what's more than that is that he's going to reveal to them their own gradual faith that they themselves are not going to see clearly at first, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, an understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. It's not going to be totally clear to them right away. That it's going to be a gradual growing of faith. They will, in fact, be shaken to their core in fear before their faith is complete which, again, we're going to talk more about in a moment. But first, what happened with our blind friend? What happened with him? Who, by the way, um, will probably meet in heaven someday. Like, that's kind of cool. I don't know. why That puts a smile on my face. For some reason, that puts a smile on my face. I don't know why. But we're probably going to meet him in heaven someday. It's kind of cool. Dude got his eyes spit on by Jesus. That's really unique. <laughs> Jesus heals the man then gives him one final instruction that was important enough for the writer to include it in his account of the gospel. Verse 26, Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Don't even step foot in there. Go home. Meaning that the blind man's home, first off, was not in the village at all. He's not from, this person is not from within Bethsaida. Some travel was required to even get to Jesus. More evidence of genuine faith, I think. You have a blind man who's traveling distance. I don't know if you've ever traveled blind. Not easy. I mean, I haven't either, but I have an imagination. <laughs> I have some empathy. And that's not entirely true. We've definitely done some youth games involving a blindfold um, and tripping over tree stumps as Teens led me to safety. (laughs) That game is not coming back this year, I'll tell you what. But he says, don't even go into the village, go home. Jesus had very strong language for the city that saw many miracles, yet wouldn't believe. It seems at this point that Jesus is allowing Bethsaida to walk to their own destruction. And I don't like that. I don't want to do ministry like that. I don't want to have to use wisdom from the Lord and look at somebody and and have to say, they've had enough opportunity and my hands have to be off. That goes thoroughly, thoroughly against my heart. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but the kids that go to this church are incredible. Ah, Somebody knows this. I adore them. And it, like, the thought of having to let go breaks my heart for Jesus. Because he saw a whole lot more than I did. And it breaks my heart for the Father, who has seen it throughout all time. I'll be honest, I have not yet figured out how to do that. And it's a lot harder for me to understand when somebody is past the point at which I'm supposed to be spending time with them. It takes a lot of prayer and a lot of fear and trembling. This is a very scary place to be f- for any person, but especially for an unbeliever. For the believer, you see God's discipline which he does to bring us back to him. For the unbeliever, every opportunity to turn seems to lead to greater condemnation in the end. So, anyways, that's what a pit stop for Jesus looked like. Pit stop over, they leave Bethsaida, and Jesus' ministry is about to take a very serious turn. But before they get there, Jesus had a question for his apostles that he needed an answer to. Before they get to this meeting, Jesus wants to know something from them. Verse 27. By the way, Kristen, I love the old song you brought back. I don't know if he did that on purpose, it was great. Every knee shall bow. like I love it. Um, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you he asked them who do you say that I am and Peter answered him you are the messiah Peter's great confession you are the messiah and one day every knee will literally say that every knee will say that words are hard that would be terrifying <laughs> for the <laughs> Oh, man. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So on the road, Jesus' heavy meeting, to Jesus' heavy meeting, he wants to first verify his true identity with the apostles. He wants to verify this with them. So he takes a moment on the road to ask two questions. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Now first, who do people say that I am? They answer him, verse 28, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And I'm like, hold on a second. John the Baptist? What? Come on, no. No, there's no way. There's no way. You just see somebody like, hey, you know, just saying. Has anybody seen John and Jesus in the same room? <laughs> yeah, like, Yeah, he literally got baptized by John the Baptist in front of a multitude. Has anybody, what? John the Baptist, who thought that? You done been recorded for all history, sorry. (laughs) Wow, crazy. We humans are terrible at getting facts straight. We're so bad at this. And I say we and I say humans, it's us. We're so bad at this. Elijah makes more sense. Uh, still incorrect, but at least it makes some more sense or closer to sense. Elijah had great power. He performed many miracles. Plus, Jesus actually mentioned Elijah in Matthew 11. Matthew eleven thirteen through 15. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, He is, by the way, if Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, (laughs) you should probably do that. He is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. So Jesus actually mentioned Elijah. So the big problem with this idea that he's Elijah is that Elijah, who is to come, is the one who would make the way for the Messiah. That's not what Jesus came to do. And you see, Jesus needs to make sure that his apostles Nobody's really here about before this terrible meeting they're going to have in a couple weeks, not today. The third title, One of the Prophets, suggests that he's not even connected to the Messiah at all, just some good prophet, good teacher mindset. That is, by the way, one of the most One of the most common false beliefs about Jesus today that still persists. Very common today. But Jesus claimed to be much, much more than a simple prophet, meaning that he was either one, crazy, or two, actually the Messiah. Those are the possibilities. Made evident by his second question. Who do you say that I am? to his apostles, and Peter answers clearly and correctly, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, if you will. John the Baptist, Elijah, and the prophets all have one thing in common. They are looking forward. Jesus is not. He is not proclaiming a Messiah. His role is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is establishing salvation. That's what he's doing. If his correct identity is known, then his purpose should be rightly known. Because Messiah is not a name, neither is Christ. It's a title, and a title tells information that a name does not. A title is really important, and it struck me this week how easily we, myself, and many others like me, use Christ after saying Jesus without even thinking about it. We call him Jesus Christ, which is accurate. It's not inaccurate. He is Jesus Christ, But it's crazy how easily we use Jesus Christ for his name without even thinking about it. Without even thinking about what Christ means. It's not his name. It's his title. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Apparently the church has been doing this for some time, as made evident by G. Campbell Morgan saying this in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He says this, Messiah is not a name. Christ is not a name. When we speak of the one whom we worship as Christ, let us remember this is a title and not a name. The title means so much more than just a name. It says who he is and what he does. It's In essence, an office, if you will. This agreement with Peter's revelation starts a new direction in Jesus' ministry at this point. We see a turn in Jesus' ministry. It's almost like cresting the hill at this point for Jesus. The evidence of who Jesus is has been there the whole time, for those who could see it, but now he is openly acknowledging the title. There are certain things that Jesus did and said that could not be true of anybody except for the Messiah. So the evidence has been there, But now, finally, we see Jesus accepting and acknowledging the title Christ or Messiah. He's actually accepting it. This is a big change. This is for his apostles. This information that is going to go out to the whole world that we now can look back and see that it has gone out to the whole world, that we ourselves possess this information that Jesus is the Christ. In this moment in time, in this lush region of, uh, uh, near Galilee, with all the beautiful greenery around, and these very poor, humble, probably filthy, traveling, dusty, dirty Jewish men, this information came to this group first for a reason and a purpose. Jesus continues to do ministry the way that he's always done it. Very personal, one-to-one with those who are following him. The evidence of who Jesus is has been there the whole time, but now he's openly acknowledging the title. And here's the cool thing. That was all that Jesus needed Peter to know at this point. Even though Peter didn't have a full understanding of what the Messiah was here to do, or even a correct uh, understanding of who the Messiah is, is as a deity, the deity, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and that's all he understood. It's all he understood. We're going to see as the weeks go on. He had almost all the details wrong. (laughs) He figured out, yeah, you're the Messiah. And then all the gaps that he filled in for what the Messiah should be, I shouldn't say all, but so many were wrong. And yet all that Jesus needed him to know was that Jesus was the Messiah. That little seed. This is a really important distinction Peter seemed to have a pretty bad idea of what Jesus was here to do. He had faith that wavered. We're going to see that. Yet, he knew who Jesus was, and it was all that was needed, that little seed, for Peter to eventually learn and know the full purpose of Jesus' life here. It was a gradual awakening for Peter. Peter and the other apostles, but we're talking about Peter now, so we'll roll with that. It took hard work, it took faith, it took obedience, and it took relationship with Jesus to get there. Now maybe you know why I started with a story about my relationship with my wife. God gave us relationships for a reason. Do them right, and they teach you incredible things. Do them wrong, and hopefully they can still teach you incredible things, but just the hard way. It's God's grace. It was a gradual awakening. It took faith, hard work, obedience, and relationship with Jesus to get there. But that's the one of the two necessary seeds, actually, to start the process for sanctification. And these two seeds are know that Jesus is the Savior and accept Jesus as your savior. Those two seeds in your life, fully understood and accepted, those two seeds, according to Jesus, according to the gospel, according to scripture, it's consistent throughout, those two seeds will take you all the way. God says he is faithful to complete every good work. He inspired the writer to say he is faithful to complete every good work. Today we see the knowledge that Jesus is the Savior, and very soon after this confession, we will see if the apostles accept him as their Savior. The knowledge is there, seed one. Are they going to accept him as the Savior, seed two? But that's coming further weeks. But very, very soon the apostles are going to have to wrestle with the question. and This is the big question for the apostles. This grand meeting that Jesus is walking them all the way to with little pit stops along the way. This meeting that he is going to smack them in the face with this crazy, crazy, crazy dilemma. And they are going to have to wrestle with this question. How can the Savior, who I am supposed to follow, go to the cross? What kind of a Messiah is that? Are you telling me I have to then follow him to the cross? That is a question That is going to rock the whole boat. And it's a question that should be rocking our boat. Worship team, you can come up. This truth, this revelation, was at this point only for the apostles. Jesus is training them for his absence. Because you see, the message will go out, that Jesus is the Christ. But it will go out through his apostles and disciples. Which is why he concludes in verse 30 with this. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Time wasn't right. Timing isn't there yet. You must wait. Jesus heals differently every single time. We've talked about that. He treats everyone individually on a case-by-case basis, just as a good judge would, by the way. He also has perfect discretion and wisdom with all the knowledge in his head. That's not me. (laughs) But it is what I aspire to be. And that is the goalpost that I'm running for. And I, I thank God, and I know I know from conversations, I know so many people in this room, I know there's a whole lot of us running for that goalpost. And uh just like a toddler learning to walk, we kind of trip a lot. Kind of fall down a lot. And I want to encourage you guys secret place with Jesus. Diving into his word and peeling it apart is how you learn to stand back up. And it's how you learn to grow strong. And for some reason, if you quit going to him, you forget. It's not like water it's not like riding a bike somehow. He didn't forget about you, but you forget. I don't know why that is. But I want to encourage you guys this morning so I encourage myself. A secret place is not for pastors. It is for pastors, but it's not just for pastors. It's not for just for teachers. It's for everybody. Get to know Jesus, and you will grow. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you chose to, instead of destroying this evil, wicked creation, you chose to come to us as a person to relate to us on a one-for-one basis. Lord, you deal with us individually. That's crazy. That's so crazy. You're so worthy of our worship and our praise. I thank you that we get to praise you today as a group, my brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters such a joy to be here. You've blessed us so richly. Be honored by our worship today. Be honored by the condition of our hearts. And keep guiding us, we ask in your name. Amen.